why AI is so essential is I don't think you can do a good job as a lawyer in certain areas if you're not using AI. Welcome to For the Record, where we go on the record with today's leading influencers and experts to discuss the latest trends in legal innovation and the business of law. I'm your host, Aaron Harrison, and today we're joined by Noah Weisberg, the co-founder and CEO of Cura Systems, the AI-powered contract analysis company based in Toronto. Noah, welcome to For the Record. Hey, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here with you. And hopefully I have that right. I know your roots are in Toronto, but you're sort of all over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that is right. Um, company, uh, I'm from Toronto and the vast bulk of our people are here, but we have people in other places, a bunch in uh, Europe and a bunch in the US too. So first of all, I wanted to say congratulations on Kira's 10th anniversary. Um, and also on your new book, AI for Lawyers, which we're going to talk about in just a little bit. Thank you. Um, both uh, took a lot of work. Undoubtedly. And um, I think, you know, there's there's been a lot of hype around artificial intelligence and AI. Um, I think we're seeing some of that hype turn a bit more into a reality uh, as we're we're seeing some of the more pragmatic ways AI can be applied in legal, um, a lot of which we're seeing in task-based or repetitive work. Um, so with that, my first question, which is, how did you and and your co- your Kira co-founder, uh, Dr. Alexander Hudik, decide that, that now was the right time for your book? Well, uh... It, what what is the right time or what isn't the right time? But what we saw was that first, um, lawyers are using AI heavily. Like it's not just hype, but there are areas of law practice where AI is in pretty regular use, and we thought that was an important story to tell. That this is something that's here, like it or not, and like you, you really don't have a choice about whether AI is going to be part of law, law practice or not. Um, and that's that's not the case across every area where people are talking about using AI. Uh, certainly, there are areas of hype that aren't yet matched by reality. But the overarching story is that there is a lot of AI usage in law already. And we thought that was one kind of important message to get across. And then the other one is that this doesn't have to be a bad thing. Like This can actually be a really positive thing for lawyers uh, if they choose to embrace it. So that was kind of the message that we were trying to get across. Like, you know, is the right thing to put this book out in 2021 as opposed to 2020 or uh, 2023? I don't know. Like as a, a mm-hmm. practical matter, it worked out fairly well for me because I, I do not know how I would have gotten the writing. The book was planned well before COVID, but I typically travel a lot. Like one of the pluses or minuses of running a business out of Toronto is that uh, probably about 95% of our revenue is non-Canadian and our customers like to see me. A bunch mm-hmm. so i end up traveling a lot and so i i practically do not understand how i would have done the ton of work that it took to do the book um if if i'd been traveling at my regular schedule so it worked out well having written it over a lot of 2020 like definitely watched a lot less uh episodes of succession than uh <laughs> my wife and I, and I would have liked uh you know my summer was less uh relaxing and and all that but 
Uh, I think this is a good moment to have it out. And we've been seeing that lawyers seem to be pretty receptive to the book. So uh, hopefully it was the right moment, mm -hmm. but it, it was our moment. I, I don't think that much thought came into, you know, it has to come out. The timing. Right now. But it did feel right that there was enough of a real story of what was happening in AI that we could start to uh, do it and have lawyers engage with that. Yeah, and sort of an inflection point for the industry too, I think, because everyone was trying to figure out how they were going to just function on a day-to-day -day basis. And so it seems like it's coming at a good time now where everyone's kind of now looking forward, um, but had that little bit of a pause in between um, sort of the, the hype cycle. I, I think that's right, actually. I'm, it's too early to tell. Like, here we are recording this in March, and so I don't know yet how 2021 is going to play out. But one of the things that I have heard from some smart people and gotten a sense of just from the market is that in 2020, a lot of organizations had a lot of technology-based change to deal with, and they did it. And now my sense is there are places that are starting to think about, like, well, what else can we do differently? And so hopefully this is a really good time to have it out. Um, but, you know, it's not like we get to run the simulation multiple times and see, like, if only we'd put it out in, right. you know, September 2020 when everybody was at home, it would have done better. Like, I don't know, but it seems like we're getting positive feedback on it so far and people are reading it. So uh, I'll take it. So I, I've looked at the book. I've I've read through uh, a fair amount. I, I see that it has both anecdotal information on how law firms are using AI and also sort of a practical how-to framework for actually implementing the technology. Um, could you expand a little bit about um, how you you approach that? Yeah, yeah. So first off, thanks for reading the book. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Like we really tried to make it as close to a page turner as you could make a book about AI for lawyers. So hopefully uh, it was a pleasant however many hours you spent with it. Um, in terms of what we're trying to say with the book, uh, there's really sort of two messages, as I was saying before. Number one, AI is here in law, like it or not, it just is. Uh, and number two, here's what that means for you lawyers, and that can be positive. And so what we tried to do in terms of the structure of the book was um, first off, just talk about sort of the theory, like objections that we've heard over a decade of selling this software to that lawyers have to using AI uh, and their responses. Um, the economic case for how doing work more efficiently, even if you're an hourly billing lawyer, can, can actually work in your best interests. Um, how this plays out, especially for sort of not just large firm, lawyers, which are kind of where we come from, but we brought in a couple experts, Sam Glover, Carol Elephant, to help us approach how AI might be thought of by smaller firm lawyers so that we could have greater empathy for that group of people. Um, how this is going to impact training and even sort of the distribution of lawyer knowledge and ethical issues. So that's sort of the first part of the book. Second part of the book is some case studies into a few specific areas like e-discovery, contract analysis, legal research, expert systems, uh, litigation analytics, where there's heavier use today of legal AI um, so that just people could get a sense of what's possible and what's going on in the most adopted areas in the network, in the area. And then the third what is just third part of the book is more about uh, thinking about adoption and where you're at with legal tech adoption. 
Um, one of the, and legal AI adoption, one of the things with the book is we really, uh, we phrase it in the introduction that we're writing more, um, I got a book like A Year in Provence than we are the Guide Michelin, right? Like we're not telling you this is the AI that you should buy or here are like the specific questions you should ask if you're buying a contract analysis AI, but rather um, try to get people intellectually engaged with the idea that AI is here and that it can help or hurt them. Yeah, uh, one of the highlights of the book is looking at why AI is now so vital in the legal workspace. Um, would love to hear why why that is, and more specifically, what can AI do for contract analysis technology? I think why AI is so essential is I don't think you can do a good job as a lawyer in certain areas if you're not using AI. Um, so the area that I know best is mergers and acquisitions. And uh -huh. uh, I used to be a mergers and acquisitions lawyer um, at Wagachal in New York prior to Kofan Akira. So if you're doing a typical M&A deal, say like $400 million deal, you're probably going to review somewhere from 75 to 500 contracts as part of the diligence. Um, you'll review the sort of so-called material contracts, because in fact, that company probably has 10,000 contracts. And so material just means like the important contracts. You're going to review the important contracts out of the 10,000. Like out of the 10,000, you're going to review 100. Um, that's super dangerous, right? Like there can be important stuff in those other like 9,900 contracts that you're not reviewing and you would never find it. Like a lawyer, I think a lot of corporate lawyers would say like, ah, eh, blow a change of control or an assignment clause, like no big deal. But you could be missing like an exclusivity clause or a most favored nation pricing term or like a non-compete or an unlimited limitation of liability or some wild indemnity. And you would like never know it was there. And your client could end up bound by this and like really in trouble. And we've heard of this happening and, and it does happen. And it's happening because lawyers aren't able to access this whole sort of scope of the documents because no one feels like spending the time it would take to review like 10,000 contracts. Uh, but in fact, if you use the technology, you can do that. Um, same stories playing out in legal research, right? Like you're not going to be able to find relevant cases if you're not uh, assisted by AI. Same thing in e-discovery, right? Like if there's millions of documents, you're probably not going to <laughs> turn over the right ones or spot the right ones if you're not assisted by a computer, unless you have like, a $50 million budget and like a ton of time. Like AI is just enabling lawyers to do more of the work that they should be doing, like to practice law the right way, uh, unconstrained as much by time uh, in the way it is without AI. Yeah, I, I read a couple of the case studies referenced in the book, uh, one of which was from Meredith Williams-Range, who's the CKO, Chief Knowledge and Client Value Officer at Sherman and Sterling. And um, she said that after using Kira for one year, her firm found that when humans and machines hold hands, the rate of accuracy was better than either one independently. Um, so could you talk a little bit about the risk of human error and how AI actually helps mitigate that? For sure. So the um, it, beyond the fact that humans just aren't looking at everything. And I think that's the really, really, really big error that a lot of people aren't thinking about right now. Uh, there's just like, even in the status quo process, 
it, it's riddled with potential for error. And I think if you speak to someone like me who's been a mid-level associate or a senior associate or a junior partner at a good big law firm, they'll all have had the same experience that I did of just it's Thursday night at 9 p.m. and you're reviewing the diligence that uh, reports from a bunch of juniors that you need to put into some kind of format and send over to your clients the next morning and realizing that the people who are on the project didn't realize that a director indirect assignment is a change of control. Um, so that happens all the time. The way that I like to think about it with uh, respect to due diligence is there's both uh, systematic and random error components. So the uh, the random error component of human error is just that like you're doing the work at 4 a.m. You were doing the work at 4 a.m. the night before and the night before that. You got in a fight with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Uh, you're distracted. You know, Kim and Kanye have just filed for divorce and it's like big news <laughs> and on your brain. Like any of those things can um, can make the people who are doing this work uh, miss something that's there. Uh, but then there's a systematic error component, right? So that's just random. Like, you don't know, it'll be worse when people are a bit more tired, a bit more distracted. Like, you don't know if someone got in a fight, like who knows? Um, but then there's a systematic component, which is contract review is typically done by very junior lawyers. Um, at good firms, like these are junior lawyers who went to the best schools, they did well at those schools. Uh, the firms have very, you know, like spend all the money they can on training these juniors. Uh, but nonetheless, they really don't know what they're looking for in a lot of cases. So if you had more senior lawyers doing this work, they would actually probably spot these things. But the junior lawyers who are doing the work, who are super smart and as well-trained as they could be, just don't know what they're looking for. And so they make mistakes anyway. So there is like a level of human mistake. And I think everybody who is involved in the diligence process and honest about it uh, knows that that is there. Um, but I think there's a deeper problem, which is the one that I was describing a second ago, which is humans miss 100% of the things that they don't look at. And uh, I think that is the norm in today's contract review. So um, AI can sort of help you make your standard process better. And we've heard that over and over again and experienced that ourselves of our software finding stuff that a lawyer might miss, even like a careful lawyer, even an experienced lawyer. Like I've seen it catch uh, strangely worded things like exclusivity clauses or MFNs that I've missed. Um, and, and I think people who used to work with me would have said that I was a careful lawyer. But going beyond that, you just, you can't do the work if you're at the same level of accuracy, if you're not reviewing everything and the technology enables you to do that. Yeah. Um... I work with a number of, of legal tech organizations who are selling into law firms um, or selling into corporate legal departments. And I I think you do hear that a lot, like, well, how accurate is the AI? But as you said, you know, how accurate is a human doing the work at four in the morning? I, it, so um, I think just on that, sorry to cut you off, but I think yeah. the way you need to think of it is the same as what you're going to be using the AI in practice. So if you're going to be using the AI without a human supervising it, then the relevant question is, how accurate is the AI versus a human? But for a lot of our customers, they're using the AI uh, as a supplement to human lawyers. And so the appropriate thing to think about, which Meredith talks about, mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. how accurate is a human versus how accurate is a human supplemented by the technology. And I think 
so the thing that we hear from our firms more often is not that the AI is more accurate than humans, but rather that uh, it's no less accurate. And I think then there's some people like Meredith, who are especially forthright, who will say that like they actually see it being more accurate. And that's certainly been our experience when we've run tests. Yeah, and the, the case, that same case study with Meredith, uh, with Sherman and Sterling, also talks about building trust, um, which was what I was just going to ask about. Um, you know, I think we all know that the legal industry has not been the quickest to adopt new technology, and I think there's still a fair amount of skepticism. Um, what are your thoughts on how we as an industry can overcome some of the psychological burdens that would help improve adoption? I'm not sure that I fully like selling into selling efficiency technology to lawyers is probably not as easy as selling efficiency technology to like car manufacturers or something like that. But I don't know that I buy that lawyers are as bad with adopting technology as they get a rap for. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think of a whole bunch of pieces of technology that have been adopted pretty ubiquitously across law. Uh, and that's happened in recent years as well. So. Uh, when I started as a lawyer uh, in 2006, virtual data rooms were getting to be pretty heavily used, but they weren't used all the time. Um, so I remember going to Pittsburgh and St. Louis and like going into a physical data room and like pulling out boxes of documents and reading those. Um, when I talked to people who were five years ahead of me, six years ahead of me in practice, they had lots of stories, like people who started around 2099. Like at that point, virtual data rooms were becoming a thing, but they weren't uh, a ubiquitous thing, right? Like they were sort of lightly used. By the time I got to be a lawyer in 2006, they were getting to be more heavily used. And I think by the time you get to like 2018, let alone, like obviously in 2021, virtual data room usage is ubiquitous. But I think even by 2018, 2019, it was pretty rare like seriously rare that anyone was going to a physical data room. Um, so it is with redlining software, blacklining software, Delta View, like whatever you feel like calling black, like that type of that category of software. When I mm -hmm. talked to partners that I used to work with, they all had stories about either doing the work themselves or sending the work out to like a secretarial pool within the firm of comparing documents. And when I was a lawyer in 2006, like that didn't happen, right? Like it was just ubiquitous use of blacklining software. And I don't think that transition was immediate, but but it was ubiquitous. And I think there's a lot of other examples like that. Electronic legal research, right? My dad used to be a lawyer and there was like a library floor in his firm. Um, I, I think now there's still lots of librarians at firms, but they're in offices, they have computer terminals, and maybe there's a few books somewhere. Uh, Blackberries, email, tons of examples throughout time of lawyers heavily adopting technology. Like as someone who builds the technology, like I, I think it should be used ubiquitously right now, right? Like I, I know that lawyers can do a better job doing diligence uh, if they use their tech, but it, it takes time. Um, but the thing that I feel encouraged by is seeing how heavily lawyers have adopted technology once they've adopted in the past. And I don't think that's so in every single area. Like, if you ever read things like Atul Gawande's Checklist Manifesto talking about like uh, trying to get doctors to <laughs> adopt uh, new ways of doing things, like you know, uh, greater use of like sanitation techniques, like it, it can be a struggle, like 50, 60 years after the fact. So 
Uh, and that's in an area where there's like significantly better evidence of the benefits, right? Like where there's like peer reviewed, heavy scientific studies, and it still can take like 50 years to get some of these innovations in. So I think lawyers may be better than we give them credit for, even though in the specific case of contract analysis technology and AI, like I'd love it if everybody was using it ubiquitously right now. I think it's going to get to that spot, um, but it, it does take uh, some time. Yeah, I actually agree with you, Noah, that lawyers do get a bad rap because um, I think we're actually now in this uh, sort of as we're the, the evolution is occurring within um, legal tech that we're starting to see lawyers and, you know, innovation, heads of innovation looking at other cases, other use cases for the technology. Um, another one of the use cases I'm referring to was um, in regard to Perkins Coie, a retiring partner and knowledge transfer. And I thought this was a really compelling story because we often think about using AI for contract analytics or legal research, but don't realize the way we can actually train these machines to learn what an individual, individual person um, that knowledge has in their head and, and to be able to apply it elsewhere. Yeah, uh, I, I love that story. It actually, um... The way it is written, it's a little hard to tell, but in fact, that was actually from Amy who told that story's previous firm. So it wasn't a Perkins Coie story, but uh, but I think it is uh, something that's really powerful just in how uh, right now lawyers, how AI can help lawyers amplify their expertise, right? So right now, lawyers basically, in most cases, only work on the projects that they work on. Right. Like in order for them to make money, they have to work on a specific project, you know, unless they maybe a couple of them write books, a couple of them do like maybe a form that gets distributed more broadly. But the primary way that a lawyer makes money is working on a specific legal project um, and compare that to music recording. So 150 years ago, if I felt like hearing music, like just before we got on this podcast, I was listening to a song. Right. And um if I felt like doing that 150 years ago, like pre the gramophone, I would have had to like, I don't know, my kids are out, like one of them could play the piano nicely. <laughs> Maybe I could get him to uh, play via song or something like that. But it would be like that type of thing. Or I would have had to like find my wife and like get her to sing to me or something. Um, or maybe a wandering minstrel would happen past and I could get them into play. But like those were the levels of choices that I had. And what we've seen uh, as music has gotten recorded is that there's been transition in artist careers, right? Like there are artists doing different things. But for artists who are at the top of the game, like they've been able to make way more money because I can listen to, I don't know, Vibes Cartel or whatever it was uh, right here from my uh, Spotify and uh, just distribute that really broadly. Um, what AI enables lawyers to do is to sort of capture their expertise in a system. So in the early days at Kira, um, I spent about 80% of my time for the first couple of years of the company just teaching the software to find new concepts like change of control, assignment, exclusivity. So I would like read a contract and I sort of point to the exclusivity language. And from that, the software would learn that. And I always took that super seriously because I knew that someday there would be a junior at a place like Davis Polk sitting there at 4 a.m. with me effectively on their shoulder saying like, do you think that's an exclusivity clause? And, and so it was like bottling up my expertise and putting it there so that a first year someday would have that available to them. 
Um, and I think more and more lawyers are going to be able to do that, sort of encapsulate part of themselves in AI, and so be able to actually uh, deliver their expertise even when they're not there. Like if you think about the amazing thing of that example I was given with the 4 a.m. at Davis Polk, like it's like I was working, but I was asleep in bed, right? Uh -huh. And in fact, I could have been working at 20 different places at that very moment. Uh, and instead, I was sleeping, right? And people were getting value out of my knowledge. And I think that's something that's like really remarkable about AI, especially for people who are great lawyers. Like if you have like a real subject matter expertise, it offers the opportunity to share that with others without having to physically be there in person. And, and I find that super exciting. Yeah, and super interesting. Um, so just shifting gears a bit now, uh, Noah, I wanted to talk with you a bit uh, about Kira and the strategic restructuring that was announced earlier this year. Um, how has the focus shifted for Kira and what was behind the restructure? Well, I think as a company, you need to sit and constantly be thinking about like, what are the things that we can do better than anyone else in the world? And how can that create advantage for us? So as a company, like, you know, we actually uh, started 2020 at about 180 people. Um, even after the restructure, we're still close to 200, right? So it's like the macro is um, one of uh like things are okay it just is that uh as we sat and we thought about like where were areas where we were doing great where it was easy to sell more of our software or where we thought we had potential to sell more of our software um and where were areas where we thought they might work better and they didn't and so uh, or maybe where they overextended our team or where it just it, it wasn't easy the market wasn't as ready yet um, so an example of that is like, uh, we found about 90, when law firms use Kira, about 90% of their usage is in areas that we've taught Kira to find information out of the box. So Kira is software that reads through contracts and pulls information out automatically. Uh, we've taught it to find 1200 data points or so out of the box in English, right? So you can put in a contract and it'll find like 1,200 different things in that con or has the potential to find like more than 1,200 different things in that contract. Um, our customers have taught it to find, we I think something like an additional 20,000 data points, okay? Um, but one of the things that we found uh, so we got customers who extend beyond law firms, like we've got like accounting customers, consulting customers, we've got corporates themselves who use the software. Um, but one of the things we found when we looked at law firms was that with large law firms, about 90% of their usage of Kira um, was on stuff that we've taught it. Okay. So if you, one of the spots where we're thinking about is like on continental in continental Europe. Like we've got a bunch of continental European customers, a uh, bunch of places that have been successful, but it's a harder sale, right? Because to be a great continental, like if you're a Dutch law firm, and we have several Dutch law firms who are our customers, um, if you're going to subscribe to Kira, you need to train Kira to find information in Dutch, or you need to use it on English contracts and. So that's fine if you're using it on English contracts, but like it's a significant commitment to train our software. Uh, like the training's pretty easy. Like we think we have very data efficient 
algorithms in terms of like how much training day they need. But like it takes real work to train it uh, in Dutch. And so what the kind of corollary to that is, is while we've been able to bring on some Dutch law firms and it's been successful, it's a harder sale, right? Because not only do they have to pay for the software and sort of figure out how they're going to roll it out, but they also have to teach it. And so we found there that it just like, it was like pushing a rock uphill up a steeper slope. And so what we'd like to do is just push a rock, like ideally downhill, but you know, you're selling tech to lawyers. So it's not, it's not always that. We think we have, um, so we've got a couple of products rolling out later this year. And one of the things that we really felt like making sure we did is that we had enough bandwidth and resources that we could make sure that those launched okay. And like from what we're seeing with one of them, like it actually seems like it is maybe like pushing a rock more downhill. Like people <laughs> um, seem excited about this. So, so what we were trying to do, and I think is a good exercise for every company to do on a regular basis is just think about where are the spots where you're thriving? Um, what are the few things that you can do that'll make a really big impact? And then what are the things that you've tried that seemed like a good idea, but you shouldn't be doing it. So what we decided to do was just do a little bit less stuff, but try to put more resources on those things. And and now looking ahead, uh, even beyond 2021, what what's next for Kira? What's going to be the main focus for you and for the company, um, you know, 12 months from now? So we've got two things we're trying to do in 2021. Uh, number one, we believe that every time a lawyer reviews a contract, they should be using software like ours, ideally ours. Um, and so what we're trying to do in 2021 is just drive towards ubiquity in law firms, uh, ubiquitous use of our technology in law firms. Anytime they review a contract, uh, they do it using our tech. So that's the first thing that we're working on. Second thing that we're working on is we've got a pair of products that uh, we're trying to get launched this year and get traction on. Uh, we've been sort of listening to the market and thinking about what makes us really special. Like I think we are the largest company most focused on pulling data out of contracts and by a fair degree, right? Like the next closest company is not close to us uh, in terms of size and maybe not even in terms of focus. So we think that focus gives us a real advantage and creates a lot of opportunities in uh, for us to do additional things. Um, and so we're trying to get two products out. We've been we're hearing positive, enthusiastic feedback about uh, especially the one that's closer to market so far. And we're just excited to have those out and hopefully we'll be able to get traction on them. So those are the two things, just ubiquity in law firms and get traction on a pair of product led launches. That's great. And and before we wrap, uh, Noah, where can people buy your book? Uh, I think you could buy it. Uh, so here we are in March 21. Um, you're probably buying your books online. Uh, <laughs> you should be able to find it at your favorite online bookseller. Uh, I know we've had success across a lot of different national Amazon uh, outlets for getting it, but if Books a Million is your thing, go for that too. Um, but it, it should be available. We really, as we did the book, we tried to make it something that someone could uh, get a lot of value out of with like three, four, five hours on a Sunday afternoon. And while I'm no Michael Lewis, we tried to make it a pretty fun read. <laughs> And uh, so do pick it up, get it on Amazon. You can probably have it delivered uh, by the weekend and hopefully it'll be an entertaining read for you then. 
Yeah, and again, the name of the book is AI for Lawyers. Thank you, Noah, for speaking with me. And thanks for our listeners for joining us for this episode of For the Record. Thanks so much for having me, Erin. Thanks for listening to this episode of For the Record. You can listen to more episodes of For the Record wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or go to platform.com forward slash for the record. Platform helps established leaders and emerging growth companies articulate how cutting edge technologies and services are reshaping and reinventing the world we live in. Until next time, this is Aaron Harrison.